difference is I'm just gonna kill you. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this time to talk about collateral beauty. Nope, wait, collateral damage. American damage. <laughs> That's right. Now, this was kind of Arnie's final film in like the glory era, really. That period where Arnie was kind of unstoppable. It was definitely at the at the tail end he Finished off with Terminator 3, but this was the last one before that. But didn't Terminator 3 kind of feel like the, uh-oh, my career's in trouble, go back to the well? Like, this felt like kind of the last stab at just being a star on his own name as opposed to, like, a franchise. Yeah, it came on the heels of End of Days and The Sixth Day. Yeah, and um, other movies with the word day in them. Yeah. <laughs> It was after Judgment Day as well. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. Now, I am curious, Tony. This is a movie I had not seen in forever. Do you remember seeing it the first time around? I do, but I didn't actually remember much about it. I remembered a couple scenes. Uh, I remembered my general feelings uh, about it when I saw it. And uh, did not have a big, a, a great recollection of, of what went on here. How about you? I, I remember going to see it in theaters... I'd been felt I'd really felt let down by Arnie's last couple previous. I remember I had a lot of hope in him. I really genuinely believed that Arnie was going to be a megastar again. I don't know why I believe that really when you really look at the career trajectory the, the writing was on the wall, but you know, I was in my early 20s. I guess I was very optimistic and I really felt like Arnie was just one movie away from being on top of the world again. And I remember tracking this movie a little bit. There was a magazine I used to read called Cinescape. It was like a movie, you know, news magazine. And yep. they were doing pieces on collateral damage. And I was convinced, like I was reading about it, being like, this is going to be massive. And so I went out and saw it opening weekend. And I don't think I disliked it that much. It was more just like, huh, that's not really what I was hoping for. Like, you know, I went in really hoping for like a true lies. And I walked out going... I guess it was about as good as Eraser, or maybe not quite. You know, I may have seen it with you, Ashley, because I went to see it opening weekend as well. Did you? I don't remember who was with me, but, you know, there's a good bet it could have been you. Good it's chance, h- yeah. Hard to remember back in 2002. I know. Does this movie not feel like a relic of a different time? I actually found it really crazy when I'm, like, looking at this movie and realizing, like, this movie... You know, it, it. we'll talk about it later, but it feels very much like a pre-9-11 movie, even though it came out post-9-11. But I, I just look at it, I'm like, this movie came out like three years after The Matrix. And boy, does it feel behind the times. Yeah, it's definitely got more of a 1992 feel than a 2002 feel to it. It does. So let's get to the box office. This movie comes out in 2002 in February. It was supposed to come out in 2001, but it got bumped because of the uh, 9-11 attacks. And at the time, too, they pulled the trailer. They they also pulled the poster. Pulled the ads. Yeah. Which featured, I think, the word bombing really uh, 
explicitly on the poster. I think it said something like lost everything or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the movie kind of got delayed till February, which nowadays people look at February as like a really great release date. That's when they put out, say, like Black Panther. So people tend to look at February now as like, well, why wouldn't you have a big hit at that time? In 2002, February was like a death slot. Well, I don't know if collateral damage is really the Valentine's movie you want to bring your date to. <laughs> there was a lot of single guys there. <laughs> Fifty shades of collateral damage. <laughs> That's why we were there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're like, maybe we'll meet someone there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we met each other there. That's right. <laughs> and then went to the movie. And then went home separately. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't my recollection. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like in 2002... Studios did not release good movies, or movies they had confidence in in February. It was definitely a dump slot. Yeah, it was a time to bury movies that you didn't think would fare very well against anything else. Yeah. But were too expensive to just relegate to a shelf somewhere. Or to relegate to January, where you were really going to make no money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where it was like your first week in like a January box yeah. office is like $5 million. <laughs> Yeah, Jack Blackuary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I was not aware of that at the time like i don't know that i knew release dates quite as well so i really did think they were giving this movie a splashy release in february <laughs> it was like well what better way to start the new year than with arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> just in time for valentine's day yeah well exactly <laughs> but the movie cost actually quite a bit of money an unfortunate amount of money for 2002 it cost 85 million holy smokes really yeah and it made 40 domestic but this is a time when the international box office started to be a little bit more important and a little bit uh, more highly regarded. How much did it make uh, internationally? $38 million. Ooh. For a total of $78 million. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, like, this movie really was a bomb. Like, for Arnie, at this point in his career, this was a genuine bomb. I think you could say, like, some of the previous ones were, like, underperformers. Right. This one was a bomb. And uh, it was number 66 for the year, but right between the Wild Thornberries... <laughs> And enough, the Jennifer Lopez avenging woman movie. I can honestly say I've, I've never seen either enough or the wild uh, thornberries. Thornberries. <laughs> <laughs> it was an animated movie, I believe. I did not see the thornberries, but I think I saw enough. I think it was so unmemorable, though, that I can't remember if I or if I'm just remembering commercials or in trailers. That sounds like the the uh, lead up to a joke. Mm. You saw enough of what, Cam? <laughs> I'd seen enough of J-Lo that year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like it's something, if I did watch it, it was on, like, Super Channel. Like, I did not pay a cent to watch it. I, I hope not. But for that year, let's look at the box office for that year. And I think, I think normally I don't point this out, but I really want people at home listening to this show or out wherever you are listening to this show to just listen to these titles and think about what kind of movie collateral damages and kind of the, the pleasures it's trying to deliver compared to the movies here on your top ten at number one, you have Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Never heard of it. At number two, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. That's uh, the one with the wizard, right? <laughs> number three, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Uh. Number four, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> number five, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Number six, Signs. Number seven, Austin Powers in Goldmember. Number eight, Men in Black 2. Number nine, Ice Age. In number 10, Chicago. Now look, mixed in there, there's some, you know, adult fare, like My Big Fat Greek Wedding or Chicago. But when you look at the big name titles there, like the blockbusters, they feel like the modern era to me. They feel like now. Whereas Collateral Damage does not. 
where now we're pretty much in order to be a blockbuster you've almost certainly got to be in a franchise yeah i mean i look at the box office any given year there's a spider-man movie now there's a you know a lord of the rings sequel like the hobbit there's a star wars movie and actually going back to that list when you think about it it's really only my big fat greek wedding and chicago that weren't part of some big franchise i mean ice age i guess it was the first one but But it uh, kicked off a long franchise and i mean science is a standalone movie but m night Shyamalan was such a brand at that point like you people were going because of him because they loved unbreakable and and, uh the sixth sense and and that apple cart uh carried him one more movie quite a ways down (laughs) the Um, village was the breaking point for a lot of people what about the happening oh by then he was like a kind of a laughing stock but uh yeah, so I think that's interesting. Like, the that box office top ten, a lot of it feels very representative of now. Collateral mm-hmm. damage feels representative of a time I've forgotten. And some of the movies that were also out that year, I think it's interesting because a lot of them are movies or franchises. They're coming out with, you know, kind of like the next generation of action stars or, you know, kind of action vehicles. Uh, at number 15, you have Triple X with Vin Diesel, very much like the heir apparent to Schwarzenegger. At number 21, you have Born Identity. Again, Matt Damon becomes like that everyman action hero. That that really does sweep the whole you know generation forward. I've always considered the Born Identity to be, to be a direct sequel to Goodwill Hunting. Oh, obviously, yeah. Um, at number 30, you had The Scorpion King. Again, The Rock, right? Really breaking out onto his own at this point. Number 64, you have Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. A franchise that's been very successful, especially internationally, with Mila Jovovich becoming an action hero. Uh, at number 99, below uh, Collateral Damage, you have The Transporter, where you get Jason Statham starting to come into his own. Which, if I remember correctly, co- caused a real schism in our friendship at the time. Because, mm-hmm. Cam, I-, I still remember this. 2002, Yep. We-, we watched the trailers to The Transporter, and you promised me <laughs> that you would go see it with me. And lo and behold, the weekend came, and the weekend went, and I gave you a call on some... <laughs> I don't know if it was February. Yeah. <laughs> and you had gone to see it with somebody else. I was devastated. It was a first date. I let her pick the movie. I think everyone at home will forgive me for this. I keep saying at home, but people are probably out doing things. They don't sit at home listening to podcasts that much. <laughs> but yes, I'm sure every listener would completely uh, be sympathetic to my cause. I don't think so. Uh, you know what? L- leave leave a comment. Are you on, are you on the <laughs> cam as a... <laughs> Cam is a no good movie cheat. Yeah, hashtag Cam is no good movie cheat. Yeah. <laughs> or, or hashtag Cam is the best. Yeah, right. <laughs> but <laughs> getting back to the box office, the interesting one, just way further down the list, you have, again, collateral damage at number 66. Kind of of a similar era as Arnie. At number 123, you have Steven Seagal really floundering at this point with Half Past Dead. I think that's his last theatrical movie. And, um... So he, aptly named. Aptly named, yeah. Uh, and, um, you can kind of see how the action heroes of that era are definitely getting kind of knocked out of the out of their place by this, this newer generation of action heroes. That's true. You pretty much have the entire cast of Fast and the Furious. Yeah, um, or, family. Or, or the Fast and the Furious franchise mm-hmm. uh, coming out. You got Hobbs and Shaw there <laughs> and the other guy <laughs> whatever vin diesel's name is dom <laughs> yeah right i'm sorry i forgot yeah so <laughs> it's an interesting box office year because to me it just shows like that there had been a real turning point in what movies were gonna be delivering and we're still going through it now like things have not changed 
and it's going on almost 20 years since this point. Yeah, that's interesting. We were actually talking about it a little bit before we started recording the podcast, how uh, Disney has managed to acquire Star Wars and Marvel mm-hmm. and now Fox mm-hmm. and pretty much taking over the world and just releasing all different genres and different types of movies, but certainly following a money-making franchise formula that uh, kind of kicked off in the early 2000s or, uh, with, with these types of movies. Definitely. One interesting thing about this movie is it is a box office bomb, but I am curious if it would have been had the studio been behind it. Like, if circumstances had been a little different in terms of the real world, you know, effect on this movie, I, I don't know that it necessarily would have been as much of a bomb. The circumstances really did work against it. The studio was not putting money into heavy advertising for a February release. Yeah, and you got to talk about bad timing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. A Schwarzenegger. Uh, terrorist vehicle film yeah Uh, and it's not just the advertising and the marketing and when it was released but it's also uh i mean i know for a fact that this this movie was edited heavily yeah after after the 9-11 events and before its release uh it had much more explicit uh terrorist undertones i think it was originally set in libya instead of colombia that was the original uh story treatment yeah oh okay before they yeah they rewrote yeah. it to be colombia but there was a whole subplot involving a, a airplane hijacking yes with sofia vergara as one of the hijackers everything there was all cut and it was supposed to be arnold schwarzenegger's character uncovering this plane hijacking scheme that was all edited out of the movie there was also some bits that you know they were worried would be construed as not being patriotic enough, so they cut that stuff as well. They definitely added a, a, a few more shots of you know American flag themed mugs mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. So and and you know what? And it wasn't just collateral damage that uh, had that treatment after nine eleven. When you think about it, I mean, you can go all the way up to the the number one Spider Man, which mm-hmm. was. If you remember, it was originally supposed to end with um, Spider-Man capturing something or other, uh, maybe maybe the Green Goblin, by webbing between the Twin Towers. Well, that was the teaser trailer. It was him capturing a helicopter right. between the, tw- the Twin Towers. And yeah, they had to get rid of that teaser. They also had a poster for Spider-Man out at that era where he was on the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And they pulled that as well. And yeah, it was just a weird time for movie marketing where... It just seemed like there was all these movies that had marketing campaigns that were very, just for some reason had a lot of imagery that you would not want post 9-11. But it's amazing that they still continued to name the Lord of the Rings sequel The the Two Towers. I remember at the time having discussions debating whether that would change. Like there was a lot of discussion that they were going to change the name of that. And they didn't. And no one really seemed that upset. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, basically a lot of movies at that time, not just collateral damage, although collateral damage, I think, got a lot of collateral damage yeah. from those uh, from those attacks. But other movies at the time, too, it was, a, I think, a big scramble in the entertainment industry to uh, really think about what's entertaining and what's not. Like, you think about, you compare this to the natural comparator, like True Lies. Yeah. And you know you can really see how different those movies are, even though uh, they are very much in the same kind of era and the same kind of style, even. Yeah. No. Oh, no. For sure. So, Tony, why don't you just tell us what is this movie about? Well, Cam, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you're glad. Yeah. This is about uh, firefighter Captain Gordy Brewer, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
who in a tragic terrorist bombing uh, has his beautiful wife and son killed and realizes that the bureaucracy of the American law enforcement institution is not going to track down the people who did it. So he decides to take it upon himself to travel to Colombia, track down the terrorist, uh, the wolf, and bring him to justice no, no. himself. El Lobo. El Lobo, sorry. My, my Spanish isn't really up to snuff. <laughs> and, and Neither that, was Arnold's. And that's pretty, much the, uh, that's pretty much the film. Okay, so Tony, revisiting this movie for the first time in like, what, 17 years? Yeah, it is. I, haven't, I have not watched this movie since then. Although what I will say is unlike some of the other Schwarzenegger movies that we've watched that I hadn't seen in a long time, um, say maybe Red Heat is sure. the one we watched fairly recently. It, it's not one that I had just kind of, you know, where you see it on the shelf and you're like, oh yeah, that one. I, I haven't seen that in a while. This one, I kept thinking, yeah, maybe I should give that one another chance, and I just never really got around to it. <laughs> right. So how did it go? Well, I'm pleased to say that my initial impression of the film when I saw it in 2002 yeah. was fairly accurate. Okay. Which is, uh, a very, it's an unfortunate type of movie for Schwarzenegger to be making uh, especially at this point in his career. Yeah. It's kind of a disappointing movie, isn't it? Because it's really marketed as a Schwarzenegger action movie, and it's not really. It's it's more of almost a procedural suspense drama in a lot of places. Uh, and, I mean, certainly there's a lot of action into it, but it's it's almost more of a thriller than an action movie. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, we what, When we what? talked about... Well, don't worry, I'm going to give my thoughts in a sec. But, you know, we talked about um, The Sixth Day uh, not too long ago. And we talked in that episode about how it really felt like Arnold Schwarzenegger was trying to do, like, a fugitive movie. Like, The Fugitive had been a massive hit in 1994. And you could kind of feel that ripple effect where a lot of the circumstances he found himself in in that movie felt like something out of The Fugitive. Yes. And it makes, I think, uh, a lot of sense now that he's making this movie... With the director of The Fugitive, Andrew Davis. And this movie, again, feels very like the type of thriller that The Fugitive made really popular again, but also was <laughs> had a best-before date that was quickly coming to an end. Yeah, it flamed out pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, and, and this movie didn't really add much to the genre, both on the action side and on the chase thriller side it's pretty formulaic pretty generic i mean you even have him jumping down a waterfall <laughs> yeah just like in the fugitive <laughs> which yeah it's almost shot for shot yeah uh, so, al although i did notice also almost shot for shot as the the predator sure yeah yeah predators or sorry it. i should say predator not to be confused yeah, with yeah. the predator no i don't know of any movie called the predator <laughs> <laughs> well don't go back and listen to our podcast which is almost certainly not about the predator <laughs> i don't remember any of this <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it was weird revisiting this movie because yeah like when i was sitting there watching it, i'm thinking in my head of all the things that had transpired before this movie like i'm like the limp biscuit craze happened before collateral damage comes out and yet why does collateral damage feel so much older to me than like the new metal craze <laughs> like it just revisiting this movie this feels older to me than a lot of other movies that came out before including like the matrix which was in 99 like 
and I don't know, just watching it now, I find it hard not to be kind of pulled out of how old-timey it feels, but not in a good way. Like, I think The Fugitive holds up great. I can watch The Fugitive still and be drawn into it. This, to me, is just like a type of very boilerplate studio movie of that era that it's not really aiming to be great. It's just kind of aiming to be a three-star movie that you're like, yeah, I guess I can go see that on Friday night. And it just, I don't know, there's nothing memorable about this movie, and I guess the big hook of the movie is, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, as an everyman, going to uh, Colombia to find the, you know, the man who killed his family. Weirdly enough, I found all the stuff in Colombia really tedious and boring to sit through for the most part. There was little bits here and there that were kind of fun, but for the most part I found that stuff so downbeat and morose that there was just no fun to it. And the stuff I got the most joy out of was at the beginning with Arnold Schwarzenegger making really absurd saves in a fire situation as a fireman, and then at the end where he's having this really over-the-top battle with the terrorists. Like, Arnold Schwarzenegger is very tough to buy as, like, a really depressed everyman. See, it's funny you mention that, because I did not think that the problem with this movie was Arnold Schwarzenegger's acting. You know... I don't think it's the acting. It's more just the tone. The overall tone of everything is so downbeat. I, I agree with you. And I was going to I was gonna mention this, which is, you're right. This is kind of the tail end of the uh, real heyday of Schwarzenegger. The, the kind of post-Terminator 2 or Terminator 2 era Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Uh, you know, between Terminator 2 and T3, you know, that's clearly... The, the era closes at T3. He goes sure. on, he does a, a couple cameos in like the rundown and around the world in 80 days. But after that, it's all politics. Stay tuned for those episodes. I, I definitely think we should do an around the world in 80 days episode. I, it'd be a shame to not to on this podcast. There's one listener who's like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if we get to it. But I did notice Schwarzenegger in this role here. Uh, definitely... You notice a little bit more of what he brought to the screen after his return following politics. So you see a little bit more of um, the Maggie or the aftermath. Oh, yeah. uh, Big time. And that and that sort of thing. You saw you saw seeds of it, though, popping up in the sixth day and even end of days. Like you, you saw him planting these seeds to kind of want to be taken more seriously as an actor. For sure. And I got to wonder if at this time in his career, Schwarzenegger wasn't uh, thinking about you know, how long can I be mm-hmm. this action superstar or what type of action superstar am I going to be? Because Schwarzenegger's never been stupid at positioning himself pretty well for whatever it is he's going to do. Right. And he had to be thinking, okay, I, I became an action star because I was the uh, multiple, multiple Mr. Universe winner mm-hmm. and had the greatest physique on earth. And and now I'm getting a little bit older. There's people who are lifting more weights than I am. Sure. So yeah, Vin Diesel showing up on the box office. The Rock. Yeah. So yeah. so what am I going to do? And you and you're seeing in these later roles of his, uh, you know, he. I mean, I don't really count Batman and Robin, but but End of Days, Sixth Day, um, Collateral Damage, not so much Terminator Three, but you see him. Um, really trying to stretch his acting muscles a little bit more than he did previously. For sure. I mean, you can see that in this kind of these last 
kind of gasp movies as a box office star. He's trying to go the more the everyman action hero route because that's the sort of thing that he could sustain for another couple decades versus the, you know, the the character from Red Heat or the, you know, the, well, he's doing Terminator still, so I can't say the Terminator, but, you know, playing, he's not going to be able to play Dutch forever from Predator. Yeah. I wish he'd do it again, but <laughs> apparently once was enough. But I have a theory that's just kind of been formulating in my head the last few minutes, and you brought up this movie. I'm wondering if Batman and Robin scared him. Because at that point in his career, he's done like, uh, you know, Eraser, he's done True Lies. These are more traditional Arnold vehicles. Like, he definitely knows that world. And I wonder if he saw Batman and Robin as kind of where movies were going. And it's like he signed on without even quite understanding what he was signing on for. The movie is reviled. And it's almost like he got scared to kind of try for maybe where the movies are going. Which, when you look at the box office, you can see where they're going. And it's almost like he said, okay, I'm going to try and go back to kind of what I do, but try to make them a little more everyman kind of thrillers. A little bit more mature. Yeah, like it wasn't like he was going to try to grab onto like the big projects. You know, I remember there was the stories about Sean Connery being offered Lord of the Rings and uh, The Matrix and turned them both down. He's like, I don't understand what these are about. Like, I just don't understand them at all. And I almost wonder if that's how Arnold felt. Like he was, he probably thought Batman and Robin was a sure bet. You know, the Batman well, movies every, had all been everyone successful. Everyone thought it was a sure bet. For sure. And if that sure bet doesn't pay off, how much confidence do you have when you're getting approached with scripts that are maybe more out there than what you're used to? Or like, you know, say like a Spider-Man movie or something like that. So, so I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you think there is maybe something to that? Well, maybe. And And what I will say is that I don't think he necessarily failed. And we've talked a little about... Uh, a little bit about Arnold Schwarzenegger's development as an actor. I mean, we've gone all the way back, and you look at where he was in... Yeah. I mean, if you want to go right to the beginning, you look at where he was in Hercules in New York, and then we we just actually did our podcast on another early one, the Jane Mansfield story, and on and a little bit farther ahead than that, Conan the Destroyer. And you look at this progression of Arnold Schwarzenegger as an actor, and it's really actually quite amazing... Yeah. Um, how much he expands his range from basically literally the Terminator, uh, a killing robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he stretches his comedic muscle in Twins and Kindergarten Cop and, and that kind of fare. And then you can really see him here in these later movies uh, trying to be a little bit more serious, trying to be a little bit more emotive on screen. And I think actually really succeeding in a lot of cases. Not always perfect. But, uh, like the movies don't deserve the performance a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel the same way. Like, I think at the time, people were a little harder on Arnold than maybe he deserved. Like, there was a lot of, well, Arnold's just kind of doing the same thing again. He's playing the Arnie role. But I really do. I, I agree with you. You see a real evolution in his comfort on screen and ability to just be like a charismatic force and bringing subtlety as he goes. Like, by the time you get to, like, this movie, which I mean, isn't very good, but, like, there's more subtlety to his performance. You can see what, you can see when Arnold Schwarzenegger's thinking. And that's something that's, I think, really hard to communicate a lot of the time is an actor just thinking. But you can see he's able to sell all this stuff. This is not a really, really crazy over-the-top action movie. It's pretty stripped-down stuff. And it relies more on just his physicality and kind of the emotions he wears on it, you know, just on his face a lot of the time. Yeah, I certainly think, like, you look at when he's he's sit, just sitting there not saying anything shortly after his family's been 
uh, killed by these terrorists. Yeah. Uh, I felt, anyways, I mean, maybe it's just because I was thinking about what I was going to say on this podcast. <laughs> um, but I really felt he's doing a great job as an actor. Like, I really felt like I could feel his pain as a character. Yeah, like, I would have almost preferred just a drama about Arnold in this type of role. As opposed to kind of this thing. Well, we'll get that in Aftermath. Yeah, maybe I'll be saying, boy, I wish I was watching Collateral Damage. Because you still haven't seen Aftermath, have I have you? not. I'm saving that one. You're saving Genesis, and I'm saving Aftermath. <laughs> yeah. I checked the list today, actually. And I think that uh, Terminator Genesis is officially the, the only Schwarzenegger movie I, I now haven't seen. Is, is No, no. Stay Hungry. Oh, right. You know what? I haven't seen Stay Hungry. You're That's correct. not really a uh, Schwarzenegger vehicle, though. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so this movie, I just found it really frustrating and that like it feels like something that's just like like a twinge away from working like it's almost it's almost good you know yeah it's like the pace feels weirdly slow like it feels kind of leaden but you can tell that just with a little bit of a polish and punch up this thing might have worked and you know that and the feeling i got too is that if it was good enough to be good it could have been great right and like andrew davis is a director who i think got a little overrated around the time of the fugitive he was not like a prestige director like when you read out some of the movies he did so he kind of breaks onto the scene with the movie code of silence the um what's his face chuck norris movie right and then he does above the law with steven seagal mm-hmm. a movie that's you know it's all right not one of the better seagals but it's it's memorable i guess sort of uh then he does a gene hackman movie called the package i've never seen then under siege the greatest seagal movie ever well, which isn't really necessarily saying a lot. Uh, well, I am a fan of Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, <laughs> but Under Siege is awesome. Like, yeah. it's a genuinely fun movie. Under Siege is a pretty great movie. Yeah. And then he does The Fugitive, and suddenly it's like, oh my god, Andrew Davis is the next great talent. But it turns out it's only when he's working with Tommy Lee Jones that yes. truly great things come out. Because he follows up The Fugitive with Steel Big, Steel Little, the Andy Garcia vehicle that no one remembers. That's a movie that does not exist. Um, and then he does Chain Reaction, the Keanu Reeves movie. I don't remember that one at all. It was terrible. Uh, and then he does A Perfect Murder, the Hitchcock riff. With Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow, which was also pretty weak. And then Collateral Damage. And then he does the Disney movie Holes. Which was okay. I never saw it. It was a... Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, I think it was Shia LaBeouf, wasn't it? As far as a kid's movie goes, it wasn't bad. Okay. And then in 2006, his final movie um, to date, he did the Kevin Costner, Ashton Kutcher vehicle, The Guardian. Which was, I think, about... Was it about red? Uh, about the? Uh, Wasn't that about the uh, the mutant raccoon that travels through space? Definitely not about oh, that. Sorry, that's, that's, that's the guardian of the. What's galaxy. the name of the people that like patrol the oceans? Coast Guard. Aqu- Aquaman. It was a. It was a co- <laughs> <laughs> Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yes, the guardian. So, like Andrew Davis. There are more misses than hits on this track record. And I think at this point, like, Arnold should have been questioning this. I think Arnold has a really good track record for picking his directors. When you look at a lot of his great movies, he knew who to work with. I'm not sure at this point in the game, Andrew Davis was the guy to re-energize Arnold's career, especially coming off of Chain Reaction. Yeah, I think you're right, Cam. I mean, it is kind of interesting. Like, you think about it, um, you know, he he works with Brian Levant on uh, Jingle All the Way. 
and Roger Spottiswood on The Sixth Day, which we've talked about, and Peter Himes on End of Days, which we haven't reviewed on this podcast yet, who are all uh, journeymen, working directors who, you know, they make movies yeah. uh, and they're given a fair amount of money to do it. But these guys are not the A-plus listers that he'd been working with uh on his rise and domination of the of the movie market so here's the question did arnold not want to work with a-listers anymore maybe because he wanted to have more control over his projects or b did a-listers not want to work with arnold who knows i don't know it's a real question to me because it just seems like there's that era where like arnold is working with all the top directors of you know action directors of that era and then you kind of get to this period where he's struggling and he's doing a lot of these mid-budget movies with directors who have not the most distinguished filmographies. Maybe a couple good movies in there, like Andrew Davis, but not exactly the creme de la creme. And I think the results are pretty pretty clear that this wasn't going to yield great stuff. Like, it's almost like they didn't know how to use him. And so you get a lot of Arnold bringing his own strengths to the material just through his performance, which at this point later in his career, he's a pro on screen. Like, he just really has it all down. But it's not like they're building up a really great world around him. Yeah, you can see them trying. I mean, you can see Spottiswood trying in The Sixth Day. He's barely trying. <laughs> Come on. He's kind of the poor man's Verhoeven. We talked a little bit about... I think we talked a lot about <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I know I know exactly what you mean, Cam. And even Terminator 3, which was, I mean, the biggest budget movie ever at the time, largely because of Schwarzenegger's payday on it. Yeah. But uh, that wasn't, I mean, you think about what that movie would have been helmed by James Cameron. Sure, instead you had Jonathan Mostow. Yeah, yeah. again, not not bad. I mean, you could certainly do worse than him, but mm-hmm. not, he's no James Cameron. Right, no, no. And it's kind of sad because you don't get the sense of like Arnie getting to leave his blockbuster days behind with his head held high. It's kind of like you have this string of disappointments. And then it's like, you know, you kind of go back to the Terminator well and it's like that's a pretty safe bet in terms of a box office hit and then he kind of walks away into politics and you know his comeback has been pretty rocky since like it doesn't feel like the most graceful exit although i do have a pretty soft spot in my heart for a lot of those movies i do too like i'm not necessarily you know i don't necessarily dislike all of these movies like i really enjoy eraser for example but it's tough to look at um, some of these later ones with the level of fondness or admiration that some of the earlier ones have that's true and it's it is a shame because you think about what we were talking about earlier which is you know arnold's physicality is maybe diminishing a little bit although not a lot he's still in incredible shape by the time we get to collateral damage he's more sleek looking at this point like he's going from it's not an everyman but it's more of like he he's more mobile you can kind of believe him as just a jacked fire captain right and so let's just get a little into the actual movie. Before we get into that, what we should what we should say is, <laughs> I know we've kind of gone on uh, philosophically for about 30 minutes here about uh, Schwarzenegger's career trajectory, but we are actually going to talk about the movie now. So, um, spoiler alert, and there's a good chance you, hadn't, you haven't seen this movie, actually. So if you haven't seen this movie, by all means, it's easy to find. Go and watch it so that we're not wrecking anything for you, and it'll probably be easier to follow along when we're making reference to some of the scenes in the film sure so where do you want to start with this one tony yeah let's start at the beginning let's start at the 
opening scene, the uh, the fire rescue scene. Yes, which, which is you, amazing. Which you mentioned earlier. This really got my hopes up for this movie, didn't it? I mean, it has the the right level of sincerity from Arnold and over the top absurdity. You have this scene where he hears this guy going like, "Help! Help!" And I thought it was an old woman, but Arnie goes and just does this massive leap across this big like gaping fiery hole grabs like swings an axe and catches himself and pulls himself up and i'm like i would watch this movie i would watch the over the top crazy arnold schwarzenegger firefighter movie basically backdraft with arnold schwarzenegger yeah 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 backdraft two, back harder (laughs) (laughs) backdraft to judgment day (laughs) but that's just like a brief little moment i mean it's enough to show that arnie's good with an axe and that'll come back later. Yeah, although not particularly uh, observant of safety protocols at a no. fire scene. I'm sure that fire halls everywhere laugh their heads off watching that scene. <laughs> but uh, then we kind of get into the central thing where his family, we get his, a little glimpse of his home life with his wife and son. They have one of those idealistic family lives where everyone's always laughing like an idiot. (laughs) Just once I want to see one of these movies where they're just like yelling at each other. Yeah, it's like my family life, except instead of laughing, everyone's talking like an idiot. (laughs) But ultimately, you know, we don't get to meet actually his family for very long at all, which I I question maybe in retrospect, they should have spent more time with them just in, in a sense of giving us more of an emotional impact. You know, they didn't exactly cast a name for the actress who plays his wife. Um, so you can kind of see the sacrificial lamb tag written all over them. You sure can. And uh, thankfully, though, it comes fairly quickly. It they, does. Well, I don't know if that's thankful because at that point, uh, the bomb goes off. He runs into the the wolf. Uh, El, un- Lobo. El Lobo. El uh, Lobo, unknowingly. And his wife and child become collateral damage to this... Uh, terrorist attack and after that the movie kind of stops being fun doesn't it it really does we get some scenes of you know arnold schwarzenegger crying i think not quite crying because i i was i was looking for we've talked about this on previous episodes he's more like grimacing because we i think we talked about it on maggie yeah uh where we were speculating is this the only movie that he cries in we did it again recently. I and can't remember Batman which episode. and Robin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and now this one, but he doesn't quite shed a tear. Okay. Uh, he's uh, <laughs> thinking about it. My favorite part, though, and it's unintentionally funny, is when he's in his house, he's mourning this loss, and then the phone rings and it goes to the answering machine message, and it is the most folksy. The whole family going like, it's the blah, blah, blah family. (laughs) You're like, oh my God. The Brewer family. You should know that much at least. I should have. Yeah, that's shameful. But it's just, it's a little hokey. Oh, I know. I just, uh, his family life is so idyllic. It's nauseating. You need, you need Tums just to stomach. (laughs) It's all shot through gauze. (laughs) Yeah. It's very soft focus life here. But he decides to take matters into his own hands. He's watching the news and there's this guy who's sympathetic to the terrorist cause. Um, and the terrorist is played, the, the El Lobo is played by Cliff Curtis. Really well-known character actor. You've seen him in lots of things. Um, but I think he's going to be in the new Avatar movie, actually. The second Avatar. I may be wrong about that. I wouldn't be surprised. He's been in lots of stuff. Yeah. But um, at any rate, um, Arnold kind of butts heads with the CIA which is uh, headed by um, 
uh, Elias Cotillas, who will forever be known as Casey Jones from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No matter how old he gets, he'll always be Casey Jones to me. I think that's a combination of the fact that he was great as Casey Jones, and Elias Cotillas is just so hard to pronounce. It's true. (laughs) But he plays a CAA guy who has, you know, some dirty dealings in Colombia and wants to essentially, you know, knock off this terrorist leader. But can't get the support of the, the administration. That's right. But Arnie may be the way for him to do that kind of in the shadows. But Arnie goes off on his own little one-man quest across Columbia. Now, to me, this is where the movie gets kind of muddy. Like, well, I feel like it's very clean cut in the opening. Like, it's a very, you know, I'm not going to say it's the world's greatest setup or anything, but it's very, it, it, it all works. Like, well, I, I can make sense of it. Well, I think it gets a little muddier before that. Okay. Um, and I guess it's forgivable. It is a Schwarzenegger movie, but it happened multiple times in this film where you got to really wonder what on earth are these law enforcement agencies <laughs> oh, yeah. doing? Uh, it It is unbelievable. They bring in uh, Schwarzenegger to... Um, uh, Schwarzenegger has seen El Lobo uh, at the crime scene. And uh, so I guess he's brought in to identify this individual. Um, turns out they already have El Lobo quite visibly on tape with a very close up of his face. Yeah. Uh, they know it's him. They know he's putting the bomb there. Uh, it's not really clear why Schwarzenegger needs to be there. But there he is in the FBI or CIA headquarters. And at one point, someone turns to him and says, uh, Mr. Brewer, uh, or Captain Brewer, sorry. This will be tough to watch. (laughs) And then they show him his wife and child being blown up. Getting blown up. It's crazy. It is crazy. (laughs) They wouldn't let him in there and they wouldn't show him that movie. (laughs) It is really insane that they would do that. They wouldn't like press pause on the video. Like, guys, do we need the constant replay? (laughs) Yeah, they'd be like, Captain Brewer, you're going to have to leave because this is the part where your family dies. (laughs) Spoiler. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really weird. Um, But then then he goes off to this one-man quest to Colombia after after that crazy scene. Played by Mexico. Played by Mexico. But um, what did you think of this quest throughout Colombia? Do you feel like it was building to anything interesting or did it just feel kind of weird it was a little weird i did like the setup to it where they call in this guy sure. uh, oh that guy's amazing his uh uh played Gordon... by uh, jay kenneth campbell <laughs> i don't i don't know the actor i don't know the the character's name even but uh Cap... he, he's a guy with a vest yeah he's a guy with a vest a very nice vest uh but captain brewer's uh colleague at the fire department at yeah. the fire department uh, introduces this guy as like, oh, he's an expert in like South American uh, special operations or something like that. <laughs> I, I missed it. You apparently missed it as well. Yeah. And uh, this guy then goes on to basically set out a plan yeah. um, to Schwarzenegger about how to get into Colombia and find this, find El Lobo. Uh, Schwarzenegger has done some studying on his own, which is made apparent when Vestman remarks, uh, you know, get into Colombia through Panama. Panama is the back door to Colombia. Yeah. You've done your homework. <laughs> but, <laughs> and we both burst out laughing. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. Did he look at a map? Yeah. Like <laughs> Panama is, that's correct. <laughs> one of the closest countries in the world to Colombia. Yeah. <laughs> It's not news. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but what did you think of the journey through Colombia? The journey through Colombia, it is it is a little puzzling. He's just kind of going from place to place. He's trying to get to the uh, gorilla compound, I guess, or, yeah. the, or the gorilla area. Uh, There's a lot of like little adventures. He winds up in prison with John Turturro. And it's just like, he gets these little nuggets along the way. Like, the, John Turturro offers up, you know, a way for him to connect with a cocaine, like, dude, cocaine manufacturer, played by John Leguizamo, which then leads him to the next level to meet up with the, you know, the terrorists. And a lot of it just feels more like coincidence. Like, it's just this guy's in the right place at the right time. All the, It just doesn't really hold together as a guy actually investigating these people. Yeah, the whole time you're watching this movie, especially the part where he's in Colombia, he just seems like uh, a firefighter with poor judgment and good luck. <laughs> yeah, like a lost tourist. Yeah. Who just happens to fall into all the right situations. He's at, he, like, walks into an amusement park, and he, like, <laughs> meets the wife of the uh, terrorist leader. Yeah, how, how fortuitous. Yeah, and then is immediately, like, captured there. And encountering, like, the people that then take him to the prison where he meets John Turturro. Yeah, so, uh, and that's really probably where this movie becomes a problem, is there's almost no scene in this movie that couldn't be replaced with uh, a sentence or two of expository dialogue. Not only that, but, like, okay, if you're going to do connect-the-dots plotting, fine. Like, we've watched many Arnold movies that have done that. Yes. But the thing is, you've got to have, like, set pieces in there or, like, high-tension moments to kind of fill out this stuff. Because the plot's not that interesting, especially not in this movie. Like, this, this plot is pretty threadbare stuff. But you want to have, like, big dramatic moments or something to actually give you that sort of high you're looking for in this movie. Really, all you're doing is just sitting there watching Arnold have these really, like, downbeat conversations with character actors... And you're just kind of like waiting for some sort of explosive circumstance that's going to break him out of prison or what have you. But they're not the most exciting sequences. They're actually pretty toned down kind of thriller stuff. Yeah, they're definitely more in the thriller vein of action than in the action vein of action. The the jailbreak scene that you mentioned, I actually, I loved the, the they come in, they start firing mortars at the at the jail sure. towers. Yeah, you did like those mortars. <laughs> I thought that, I thought that was great. Um, the the scene where he's on the bus and the bus gets attacked yeah. and all these innocent people are getting gunned down. I mean, it wasn't great, but you can see they're trying to add some action to this, but it's all pretty, for the most part, pretty generic. It feels paced poorly. Yeah, it's not, there's not a lot of tension, not a lot of suspense. It's like you can sit there and observe it and be like, this movie's pretty well shot. Like, it does, it's not an ugly-looking movie. Andrew Davis knows how to make a slick-looking product. But there's just something about the pace of it that just kind of... You feel passive watching it, and not in a good way. You're not, like, immersed. You're just kind of like, okay, like, what's going to happen next? Well, I, I did find it very tense to, to have John Turturro... Uh, as play, a, <laughs> play a Canadian? Yeah, Canadian with a Brooklyn He's accent. Like, Yo, I'm from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the most Brooklyn actor you can find playing G A. I'm from Canada. It's like he like just looked at his character and do the right thing and said, "I'll just do that again." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very, very like yeah, it's very New York. But um, maybe he's from Toronto. Yeah, but the thing is like. 
you want those characters like him or like Wazama to pop more. Like you want them to be really memorable figures. And I didn't really find them that entertaining. Like they aren't given dialogue that's that fun in the first place. That's a big problem. No, the dialogue's pretty pretty flat in this film. Yeah, it uh, was. It was. We should say it was written by David and Peter Griffiths, whose only other credit is actually the movie The Hunted, which I doubt a lot of people remember. But it was with Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio del Toro. It was sort of a ripoff of First Blood, and it was pretty lousy. Um, and then it ha- this movie also has a story credit by a guy named Ronald Roos, who isn't a writer. He's actually a uh, editor. He edited Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, Hoffa, and The Next Karate Kid. And he was also the sound editor on The Wiz. Well, I'm going to stick that in my back pocket for the next time I'm on a game show. (laughs) But yeah, like the dialogue in this movie is just very flat. Like, you want life to it. If you can't deliver action that's like sensational... And a plot that's, like, surprising and really interesting. You've got to at least have fun characters that you want to hang out with. And maybe that's the problem with this movie, is the entire premise and the time that it's released is a down time. Yeah. Right? So, you've got terrorists in 2002. You can't really be uh, joking around with these guys the way you could in 1994 with True Lies. True. And it's pretty hard to make uh, a movie full of yucks when your family, your wife and child, are killed True. by a bomb in the first ten minutes of the film. But for a movie that wants to be, like, serious, it's not good enough to pull that off. And there's nothing worse than a mediocre movie that's super serious. Yeah, I'll go with that. Uh, it definitely takes itself very seriously. Yeah. What did you think of John Leguizamo in the movie as the cocaine manufacturer guy? Again, I'm not I'm not normally a big John Leguizamo fan. There's a few things I've I've liked him in. Usually when he's cast appropriately, he's better, but for whatever reason, directors or casting directors seem to keep casting him in these John uh, Leguizamo parts. Yeah, which which are are not my favorite places to see him. Like I loved him in John Wick, for example. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was pretty good in the Assault on Precinct 13 remake. He's really good in the Spike Lee movie Summer of Sam. Yeah, there's some, there's some good stuff in for here. For sure, there. but here he's definitely playing more uh Mario Brothers John Leguizamo, more Spawn John Leguizamo. Not Spawn, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the pest. <laughs> yeah, so there's nothing on the page though. Like he, he is just not, like it, yeah, yeah, so he's just working with what he's got. He, he's one of those guys. He's he's obviously very successful and he's very talented, but he just sometimes he gets stuck with these just flat projects that he tries to bring energy to and there's it's just not a very energetic piece so i didn't really like this character i thought his rap which was intended to be very funny was not funny it was painful <laughs> just painful um and i <laughs> i think anyone could do a better rap <laughs> uh and and again he was just he was just window dressing so you take a, a character actor like john Leguizamo, and you basically make him a generic drug dealer yeah. who drives the main character from one place to another and then gets killed and that's not a very good use of the budget allocation for that cast member, in my mind. Yeah, this movie has a problem with... Yeah, the characters are not particularly well fleshed out. Um, and, you know, like the villain, El Lobo. You know, Cliff Curtis is a really good actor. I've seen him in a lot of things. But, like, El Lobo 
is written to be basically like a foreign other and evil. Like, there's no real dimension to it. You get a little bit of that, like, I'm the mirror reflection of you. We're kind of the same sort of stuff. But it's pretty thin. It's not explored in any real way. Arnold pretty much rebuffs it right off the top. And he really just is playing, like, a, like a, a trope villain. Like, kind of the evil terrorist guy. And that's tough when you're spending a lot of screen time with him. Because there's not a lot there. No, there's not. And, and Cliff Curtis, he doesn't do a... A bad job, but similar to a lot of these characters with Leguizamo and Totoro. For that matter, Schwarzenegger uh, is just not a super engaging script and not a super engaging plot. So one one thing I think, though, that it really bears mentioning uh, while we're talking about the plot segue between John Totoro's character and John Leguizamo's character yeah. is the plot is that, you know, John Totoro is a Canadian mechanic. Who, sure. who, for whatever reason, uh, is given a pass to go into the upriver, upriver, where you need a pass to go, or the <laughs> or the rebels are going to get you. Yeah. And then you know, so he Schwarzenegger's character convinces him to to give him his pass after springing him from prison, and and up the river he goes, posing as a, uh, I guess, Austrian mechanic this time. I guess. Uh, who's going to fix a generator at the cocaine manufacturing facility. Now, I am no mechanic myself, <laughs> but I've got to believe that having Spanish as your mother tongue is not a bar to learning how to fix a generator. <laughs> and uh, I've got to believe that Colombia will probably have their own mechanics uh, that can fix a generator and probably ones that you would trust a little bit more than a foreigner that you've never met before. Yeah, why is the generator such like a big deal to fix? It's not. Like that's <laughs> the thing. Like, it's not at all. <laughs> like I, I work in a in a in a business that has a generator that sometimes goes down. And it seems like the maintenance guy with the most basic level of, like, <laughs> awareness yeah. of machines is able to fix a generator. Hey, Carl, hit it with the wrench again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but apparently, like, Arnold is able to fix generators, which we didn't know based on this character. But, I mean, you know, one of the things that is... Well, kind well, of... he, well he never fixes the generator. He spends That's that, true. He spends that whole time making explosives. Yeah, well, that's the thing. He's like a MacGyver character, which I actually think would have been more interesting if they played that up a little more. But he's, like, setting booby traps and sabotage. But it's, like, the types of things he's making, the types of booby traps he's making, show a level of technical finesse and know-how that I wouldn't have expected from this character. Like, what are they teaching him in firefighter school? I, I guess the multiple different ways that you can start fires. <laughs> he literally blows up, like, an entire drug plant single-handedly. He does. And, and you, you do have to wonder, at some point... It's a good thing that no uh, drug manufacturer or guerrilla or terrorist came in at any point in the you know six to nine hours that he was there, <laughs> and was like, "Oh yeah, how's the uh, how's the repair going? You want a sandwich?" <laughs> and just noticed that there was nothing but uh, um, light bulbs full of explosive fluid <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know bundles of duct tape with weird cords sticking out of them lying like, around everywhere. His abilities to me indicate that he would be better at just hunting this terrorist than the cia would be in terms of the movie's language like it seems like they should have just let this guy loose 
but it's weird because it's he shows himself to be highly adept at taking down an entire drug manufacturing plant, but like put him face to face with the terrorist and he's instantly captured. Yeah, so here's a question for you. Collateral damage is its standalone movie uh, revolving around this um, this revenge over his family's death. Yeah. Uh, would this movie have worked better as maybe a sequel to, say, like Eraser or True Lies or something like that? Where you could... Yeah. Di- where maybe you could dispense with the full emotional heft of having his family killed. Right. Um which is a weird way to start off a movie like this, you know. It's a real downer way, yeah. yeah. You know, maybe put the kid in the hospital or something like that and then have him get better. But, yeah, yeah having having the... Ah, little Timmy, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. I'll be okay, Dad. One day I'll walk. <laughs> having the missus and junior vaporized sure. in, in the opening scenes is, is, a, is a tough way to start. But, you know, would this have worked better taking a character that we already knew a little bit uh, about... Um, from Eraser or True Lies or something I think like Eraser is a good one. I think yeah. bringing that character back would have been actually really entertaining. Because he was like a U.S. Marshal who had all these bizarre abilities. And I think he could have made pretty much the same movie without it being such a downer. Yeah. No, I agree. Because that's the thing. It's like this movie is pitting Arnold against this kind of larger-than-life villain. And in typical Arnold style, we want to see him take this guy down. But ultimately, there's no real, like visceral like catharsis to seeing it because you're like oh yeah his wife and son are still gone like this is all empty you want a little bit of escapism and this movie just keeps dragging you back to a reality that's no fun yeah and all these things that he's doing where he's holding on the classic action tropes where he's holding on under the truck for like an hour yeah (laughs) which even schwarzenegger would get tired (laughs) and where he's manufacturing explosives and you know saving this person and that person um i would just be more convinced if this was uh marshall john kruger doing it sure than if it's captain gordy brewer now at this point in the movie too he's gotten intertwined with um the uh, the, the el lobo's wife selena played by francesca neri pretty well-known italian actress um and um this subplot is pretty dire would you agree it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I want to say it's hard to follow because I would almost forgive it, but it's easy to follow and I, I'll agree with that. If, it's any, if it was any more dire, it would be uh, a wolf on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> it is really flat. Like these two actors just don't have chemistry at all. And the thing is like everything about their relationship is absurd. Like he meets her like at a, at a carnival and, you know, defends her son. Winds up at the terrorist camp, and she's ready to leave her husband and head to the U.S. with him to take down her husband after, like, one five-minute conversation. Correct. And uh, and obviously it's all a ruse, and that's fine, and, like, that's the, the twist, is that she's in on it. You know, she had a hand in the bombing that killed his wife as well, but, like, that's that's fine. Like, the twist is whatever, but everything leading up to that is so absurd that you can't buy it. In a movie that's trying to be kind of downbeat and more realistic than your typical Arnold movie, because this relationship makes no sense. It's very superficial and weird. I thought the weirdest part, and I might be treading on thin ice here, but uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, Cameron, but there wasn't a single scene in this movie where Francesca Neri didn't have her mouth open. It was odd. 
So you did notice. I noticed. Yes, it was odd. I found it very I found it very distracting. It like, was. I don't think I've ever seen that in a movie just having uh, an actor have their mouth open the whole time. I mean, <laughs> as I said, very distinguished actress, but not a lot of credits in America. Yeah. And not distinguished here. No, and I just wonder if she was a little bit lost in this movie. This is not her native language, and she's not a very good match for Schwarzenegger in this movie. He's such a charismatic performer, and her character is, in many ways, the most complicated character in the movie. Well, it sure is. And yet, she's just not bringing it. And who, like, the direction, I don't know how that she's getting a lot of help. Like, Andrew Davis is definitely an action director. I don't know that he's an actor's director. And if you look at her credits, she's used to working with actor's directors. Although you mentioned it. I, I mean, she's no slouch in her native Italy. No, not at all. But it, it, it's got to be tough to play a character that changes sides like five times in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And did you ever buy her? Like, as you're watching the movie, did you ever buy her as someone who would be fleeing with Schwarzenegger? Like, you were rolling your eyes at points because you're like, yep, one conversation, that's all it took. I actually believe that more. It was when she she went back when she had the the second turncoat where all of that was an elaborate ruse. Sure. To, um, uh, and th this actually brings it back to the first, first point I was making about how the FBI and the CIA run their operations. Yeah. All of this was an elaborate ruse for her to get a bomb in an exploding Tyrannosaurus Rex toy <laughs> into the FBI headquarters. Which, again, why would they let this person in there? She is the wife of the world's most wanted terrorist. They wouldn't just bring her into their headquarters with all the... Right into their brain trust. Yeah, with all the bulletin boards and with pins in them and strings between the pins. With their kid running around with his motorized T-Rex toy. Yeah, it's... <laughs> they would be going through security galore, I would think. They wouldn't be going in there at all. <laughs> she would land and she would be immediately arrested. And put, yeah, in like interview rooms privately. Yeah, but you know what? It's something that I'm willing to suspend, but when she turned... Uh, over to over to evil. Yeah, I was kind of like, okay, that that's too much because everything else about her being nice was kind of coincidence. Sure, you know, he runs into her and and she's actually really happy to see him before she knows who he is. Yeah, and then uh, he just happens to overhear her talking about not killing him. Yeah, and she seems very sincere. Right, like it doesn't seem like they're pretending that for his benefit. Otherwise, why wouldn't they do that? Just in front of him. Sure. Yeah, and and then all of a sudden, for no real reason at all, she turns back and she abandons her adopted son. Yeah. Who has a hearing impairment. Did he? <laughs> yeah, he had a hearing impairment. Oh, I okay, I missed yeah, that. And he lost his parents in a uh, yeah in an attack, the same attack that El Lobo lost uh, his daughter. Yeah. Um, and so this is kind of where the movie got fun for me again. I was like, I remembered this part probably the best of anything in this movie when I was revisiting it. But I was like, suddenly it got goofy again. We have Arnold having this fight in like an elevator that's just crazy. It's insane. It's insane. Like at, at, this, at this point in the movie uh, where you have uh, Gordy Brewer, you know, he's he's doing things. He's picking up kids and running away from explosions and, you know, you know 
putting a rubber band around a grenade as, sure. so that it explodes. So he's doing stuff. I guess there is the part where he does kill like a CAA guy in a minefield. Oh, that's right. He does fight a guy in a minefield. But even that yeah. is... He kind of fumbles into success. Yeah, and it is more in the uh, everyman thriller genre sure. of, of action. And then this elevator scene happens where he pries open the elevator doors and slides down the cables with his belt. Yeah. Uh, like five stories before crashing through the roof of the elevator. Yeah. And I agree with you. This is where the movie got fun again. Yeah. But it was too late in the movie to be fun. Yes. I, I was just like, it was almost jarring. jarring. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, oh, the tone does not fit the very dour previous hour. <laughs> no. Yeah. And like you get crazy stuff because yeah, he has them like locked into like a parking garage and he sets off an explosion by using an axe to break the uh, pipes to let the the gas out and it turns into the worst cg fireball humanly possible but easily outrun which is outrun but blows arnold like across like a whole floor and it's really clunky like it looks awful but it <laughs> because it looks awful it's somehow awesome <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely uh, in the Carnosaur variety of of CG. Like, I thought that moment was really funny to watch. Like, I really enjoyed watching it. It was it was entertaining. If the whole movie had been like that, and I think we mentioned this a little bit when we did our Eraser episode, for right. example, or for the or to a lesser extent our True Lies episode, which is, you know, the movie uh, Eraser, for example, isn't particularly good. Right. But it's a lot of fun. It's fun. Yeah, it's definitely fun. But, I mean, we have this fight at the end here where it's Arnold and, uh, you know, El Lobo and El Lobo's wife. We've seen a lot of this movie is about the consequences of violence. And yet this movie ends with Arnold ramming this woman's head through a control panel, <laughs> which fries her, like, like electrocutes her to death, which is actually pretty much ripped out of Under Siege. Andrew Davis's, you know, previous 1992 movie where Tommy Lee Jones got his head run through a control panel. All we needed was Erica Eleniak coming out of a cake. <laughs> and then, yeah, he, like, hurls an axe into El Lobo's chest. These are some really over-the-top Arnold Schwarzenegger movie deaths. In a movie that has done everything it can previous to this to strip it all down. But even then, you think in a normal Arnold Schwarzenegger movie... Not only would he be doing these things, but he would be throwing that axe with a big smile on his face. Sure. And uh, he would be making some call. He'd be, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to ask you a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you really <laughs> cut me up. <laughs> you know, he'd be saying something idi just absolutely idiotic like that. Instead, I think he says, no. Yeah. Yeah, there's no catchphrases in this movie. Which I think was publicized at the time, too. That's actually one thing. And I guess the viewer or the, the listeners out there will already uh, will already know the answer to this. But I don't yet. Which is uh, every episode, our, our intro, Cam normally picks the line from the movie that we're going we're gonna to put in our intro. Yeah. Some, sometimes they get creative. Uh, I actually never know until I hear the intro for the first time. Right. I'm sometimes pleasantly surprised. Sometimes otherwisely surprised. <laughs> but I think you're going to have a hell of a time in this movie camp trying to find a line that is... Memorable. That you, that you can put in that intro. There's nothing memorable in this movie in terms of dialogue. We'll see. I, I, I'm, you've you've uh, outdone yourself before, yeah. so I bet you you'll find a good one. But, uh, so, I mean, what did you think of this final fight in these death scenes? I thought they were great. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, you know, I thought they were tons of fun. It was what I'd been waiting for uh, the whole movie. I think maybe that's why this movie failed a little bit. Yeah. Is and and this is the same impression that I had about this movie when I went to see it in two thousand and two. I remember it wasn't heavily marketed, and this was a time where, uh, like nowadays, trailers are serious attractions on on the internet. Yeah. Um, this Although was, they they were kind of then too, they were you, they were coming out in nineteen ninety nine. Like you had the big Star Wars Episode One trailer craze. Sure. So the internet had you know picked up for trailers, but it wasn't like it is now. No, not at all. And I hadn't seen a lot about this, uh, you know, so I, I'd probably seen the trailer. I obviously knew about the movie, um, but I was like you. I went to go see this, and there was so little in the way of Schwarzenegger actually doing some action scenes yeah. that it was really disappointing. He, I remember being very disappointed that throughout the entire movie, he doesn't use a firearm at all. He doesn't use a right. gun. Yeah, which they also publicized. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't know, this movie's frustrating because, like, Arnold's a really charismatic performer, but this movie does everything it can to make him not charismatic in the movie. It's intentional. Like, I don't blame Arnold for this or anything. It's like, you can tell that they were like, play it smaller, play it smaller, play it smaller. So, like, you never get any kind of sense of fun. Like, you can look at the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, and I don't think Harrison Ford's giving, like, a wacky performance, but there's a real, like, kind of element of adventure to his performance like you are swept along with it arnold just doesn't really have that in this movie he just plays it very just downbeat and that plays real havoc with some of this mid-movie action and the pacing of the movie is kind of slow but it all just kind of gets wacky in the end and to me that's what's memorable about it is that end part i wish more of this movie had been like that because when i went to go see it in theaters i was convinced this was going to be like a Arnold on a revenge mission movie, mm-hmm. which I thought would be more, you know, fun, quote unquote, like m- more thrilling to watch or just more interesting in some way. And it, this movie does not have a strong dramatic screenplay. It does not have great ideas it's exploring. And so you kind of have to question, why am I watching this? Like, why? what is the draw to this movie? Yeah, when I hear about Arnold Schwarzenegger going after the head of a terrorist organization. Uh, I'm thinking the um, the big palace scene in Commando. Sure. Uh, I'm thinking the uh, the village scene in Predator. Oh yeah. You know, I, I'm not thinking about Captain Gordy Brewer fixing a generator. <laughs> <laughs> and you and I reviewed the movie Maggie with uh, Arnold. Mm-hmm. And like that's a very very downbeat dramatic vehicle. And that movie is totally watchable and entertaining because the movie has themes it's exploring, it's written better, there's a, a stronger sense of like what type of story it's telling, there's more to kind of latch onto and be kind of swept up by, versus this movie which doesn't give you that. You're just kind of waiting for something to happen, because you know you when you go to an Arnold movie and he's chasing a guy named El Lobo, him and El Lobo are going to have a face-off at some point, so you're just waiting for it to happen. Yeah, there were, what I will say is there were a few good physical fights in, Couple, in yeah. this movie. I, I actually had pretty high hopes for the film uh, early on when Gordy Brewer he, hears on the news, uh, the, the reporter's interviewing someone with, uh, I think it's the ALC, which is a, an organization uh, that's sympathetic 
to these terrorists right in Schwarzenegger city and he goes to their uh their headquarters with a baseball bat right uh and it's where the title of the film comes from. It's where, because the guy says, oh, the, the wife and child were just collateral damage. Right. And, and you have Schwarzenegger. Wait, I thought this movie was collateral beauty. <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> my mistake. <laughs> but you have, you have Schwarzenegger saying, uh, you know, just kind of maniacally saying, you want to see collateral damage? And just smashing everything in sight with a baseball bat yeah. and pulling shelves down off the walls. Um, and then getting tased. Yeah, not exactly a fun scene. No, but pretty high energy. Yeah, and uh, if if there'd been more of that in the movie, I think it would have been great. Yeah, I agree. It's the, just kind of a weird misfire. Or or the scene where he uh, where he's handcuffed in the in the uh, in I guess the terrorist compound at this point, and he punches someone in the groin, bites someone's ear off, and right. and almost beats these guards into submission. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun stuff. I have. I thought they edited out this whole plane hijacking story with Sofia Vergara in it. Now, I'm wondering if Elias Cotillas's story was tied up in that. Because he pops up near the end of this movie and just gets like very abruptly shot in the head. Like it's very fast. It's almost like this character had to be written out a different way. And I'm wondering if he was tied to the plane hijacking story in some way. He may have been. You knew he had to die, though. Yeah, well, I'm wondering if he died, like, saving the day at the plane hijacking or something. I don't know, because he was he was the good guy, but he was also a pretty bad guy. That's true. He was. He was. No Casey Jones. No, no. <laughs> well, before we go, I think there's a couple things that are, are worth mentioning, uh, especially for people who have just watched the movie as well. Sure. Um, what did you think about... The every movie like this has got to have a scene that shows just how bad the bad guy is. Usually, oh. usually by taking it out on one of his own henchmen yeah. who have failed. And you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. I have that actually in my, in my notes. I'm what so am glad I, what, you brought up. What am I talking that about? That is the part where El Lobo stuffs a snake down a guy's throat. <laughs> a pretty great scene. You know what? <laughs> That's a great scene. It really is. It's pretty good. I've, I'd, I'd never imagined that you could stuff a poisonous snake down a man's throat like that before. Yeah, like, it's around the same year, actually, I think, in um, Fa uh, Too Fast, Too Furious, where there's the bad guy that puts the rat in the metal bucket on the guy's stomach and then heats the bottom of the bucket so the rat will dig out through the guy. Yes. But that's a PG-13 movie, so you never actually see it and it never happens. You know, the guy just freaks out and they let the rat go. But in this movie, that snake goes right down that guy's throat. <laughs> I always wonder. I think some of these terrorist organizations and movies could do with someone in HR. Yes, because, that could probably help. Because I will say, like, when you have a, a trusted henchman who knows all your secrets, who you've been working with for a number of years, uh, and who has proven their loyalty yeah. to you over and over again by... Killing people and maybe blowing up rival gang drug labs, that that sort of thing. Sure. And they just fail to find someone in a crowd. <laughs> it is not good retention policy yeah. to start stuffing snakes down their throat. No, not great. Because it certainly is a good motivator, I guess, in the short term for these guys to... Right. Oh, well, yeah, let's, let's not go back until we find this guy. But then if you don't find that guy, you just don't go back. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I guess a couple other things to touch on. We got some cameos. 
And I'll leave one of them to you, Tony. But uh, we had Jane Lynch pop up here. Jane Lynch, who would go on and do, you know, uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. She's in a lot of Christopher Guest movies. She shows up as a CIA person of some sort who is dealt a fatal blow by uh, Selena. But um, it was kind of fun seeing Jane Lynch in this very straight-laced yeah, totally, role. Totally. Because she plays such a mad woman nowadays in so many things. Yeah, I had to, I had to kind of squint a little bit when she came on the screen because I was yeah. like... I was like, no, no, yeah, it's not out of control enough. And why don't you talk about the other cameo? Sure. Uh, it, it's a little thing that we like to do on the show called Spot Tuco Salamanca. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Raymond Cruz showed up, Tuco from Breaking Bad, as a, a, a friend of Arnie's, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think he worked for the fire department. But that's that's actually not the cameo <laughs> that I normally do, which is uh, Spots Ven. Uh, for those of you who've been with us for a while, you'll know that one of the bits we like to do on our podcast is Spot Sven Ole Thorson, who is uh, one of Schwarzenegger's longtime collaborators, uh, is a stuntman in a lot of his movies, is an actor in a lot of his movies, and has been in more Schwarzenegger movies than anyone except right. Schwarzenegger. Right. And he was hard to find in this one, but yeah. we, did, we did it. That's right, we did. Uh, if If you haven't found him... Uh, the opening scene where the bomb goes off, he's in the background uh, initially smoking a cigar, and when the bomb goes off, uh, falling over the table and yeah. rolling around. There's actually a shot of the kid walking around with his spaceship or whatever it is, and you can actually see Sven right behind him, just out of focus, but looking at the kid as he walks by. Like you'll, you, He's very visible. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. the best shot of him, I think. Yeah. So if you, if you are playing our spots fan game, uh, <laughs> and you hadn't found him, there he is. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's just give our final thoughts on collateral beauty. I mean, collateral damage. Well, um, well, I, I think it is kind of the final the final thought, which is, I thought the way they ended this movie was uh, really heart heartwarming. Okay. Where they they just kind of announced. It's one of my favorite ways that action movies end, where they just kind of announce all the good things that happens right. to the main character. They're like, they say, and Gordy Brewer's, uh the president has given him the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom, the <laughs> highest award a civilian can get, but yeah. no one can find him. Roll credits. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, you know, you've just watched Collateral Damage for the first time in forever. What is your takeaway from this movie, and uh, do you think you'll be revisiting it anytime soon? Well, I'll never say no to revisiting uh, a Schwarzenegger movie in the future. I don't think I'm going to be taking a look at this one anytime in the near future again. But uh, it was definitely interesting to look at this movie in the context of some of the other movies that Schwarzenegger had made at the time and that he'd made previously and has made since. And to look at how his acting uh, and his screen presence has evolved over that time. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I didn't really get a lot out of this movie in terms of actually it being very good. Like, I can't see myself just sitting down and throwing on collateral damage again. Um, But in terms of, like, studying the trajectory of Arnold's career, I found it really interesting to watch to know that this is kind of the last of his big solo star vehicles before, you know, going back to the Terminator well and then going into office for eight years Mm -hmm. so like i found it interesting in that regard and just kind of how weird a movie it is i I just still ask myself like why did arnold make this movie you know you look at 
where the film industry was going, and Arnold seems like such a smart guy. I, I can't wrap my head around why he was thinking, this is the movie I should be making. You know, especially after a string of disappointments. And I think we've already touched on that, which is who knows yeah. what was going on um, before 9-11. Sure. But 9-11 changed everything everywhere yeah, yeah. Uh, in America and around the world, and, and Hollywood was no exception. For sure. Okay, so I think that wraps up Collateral Damage. So, Tony, what are we doing next time? Well, next time we're going to step a little bit away from the Schwarzenegger filmography itself and and look again at some of Schwarzenegger's collaborators. This time we're going to take a look at James Cameron and the influence that he's had on Schwarzenegger's career and on movies generally. We, we recently did a collaborator episode a, a little while ago on... Andy Vanya, who worked with Schwarzenegger on a bunch of things through uh, Carol Co. And uh, kind of surprisingly, it was it was one of our best received and one of our most streamed and downloaded episodes. So, sure. <laughs> so we thought, obviously, it's something that people are interested in. And uh, we had a list of people we were going to do in the future. And James Cameron's kind of at the top of that list. So Yeah, and for sure. And we've already reviewed all the Arnie Cameron movies. So it makes sense to now kind of pay that all off before we go into Dark Fate, which is a James Cameron production. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be a really fun episode to do. You can, of course, reach us on Twitter at ArnieGeddonPod, or you can email us at ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com. You can find me on the Twitter at Cam B as in Venomous Snake Down Throat, Smith. And Tony, how do they get hold of you? You can find me, Tony G, at ArnieGeddon.com. Uh, you can also find us directly on the World Wide Web, www.arnigeddon.com. And, and of course, please leave any reviews for us on and whatever podcast catching software you're using. If you feel like it. Yeah, it does wonders for our numbers. <laughs> it's a free podcast. What do you got to lose? Come on. <laughs> okay, so we'll be back with a James Cameron retrospective.